When Maya Angelou was eight years old, she suffered a trauma at the hand of her mother's boyfriend, and she went several years without speaking after that. She later, of course, became one of the most celebrated writers, poets, and civil rights activists our country has ever known. Charlize Theron grew up in a home where domestic violence was an everyday occurrence, and at the age of 15, she saw her mother shoot her father in self-defense. She went on to become an Oscar-winning actress. And the NFL player Michael Orr, the subject of the movie The Blind Side, was of course born to a cocaine-addicted mother and was homeless while he was in high school. He now plays offensive tackle for the Carolina Panthers. Now, there is nothing romantic or desirable about a difficult childhood. Difficult childhoods come in many shapes and are colored with various degrees of hardship. And we have tons of documentation about the marks such upbringings leave on the children who endure them. For example, children of addicted parents are more likely to suffer from depression and alcoholism than other children. They have a greater probability of academic problems, and they tend to have more medical problems as well. When it comes to child abuse, affected children are twice as likely to end up in prison and nine times as likely to be involved in crime. Currently, 22% of American children live in families where the income is below the federal poverty level. That's more than one in five. Those children are subject to lower birth weight, a higher incidence of lead poisoning, and a greater probability of learning disabilities. Poverty, addiction, and abuse can leave scars that last into adulthood and span generations. And there are other dysfunctional behaviors in families, too. Domestic violence, abandonment, and mental illness, just to name a few. Each one of them bringing their own wounds and pain. But among all the thorns of a troubled childhood, some roses grow as well. Karen Casey has written a book called The Good Stuff from Growing Up in a Dysfunctional Family. In it, she explores the beneficial tools and traits that some people learn from having grown up in difficult situations. Traits like resilience, perseverance, a sense of humor, the art of forgiveness, how to relinquish the need to win, kindness, detachment, intentional listening, and the practice of acceptance instead of judgment. Some have even suggested that among entrepreneurs, there are a disproportionate number of adults from dysfunctional families. After all, they've learned to function in the midst of stress and chaos, two characteristics of almost all startup businesses. The fact that good traits can come from difficult childhoods is wonderful news for those who grow up in rocky conditions. And frankly, I think it's pretty reassuring for all of us. Given the abundance of factors that can cause dysfunction in a family, I'm not so sure normal families are as common as we tend to think, if they exist at all. The prophet Samuel surely seems to have come from a family that is at least mildly dysfunctional. I've read today's passage from 1 Samuel many times before. I've been struck by the fervor of Hannah's prayer by Eli's confidence as he sends her out in peace, and by Elkanah's deep love for Hannah. 
But this time when I read the passage, all I could think about was how messed up the whole situation is. First of all, there is Elkanah, who shows incredible partiality to his wife Hannah over his wife Panina. And I suspect that's a common pitfall in polygamous marriage. But no wonder Panina becomes bitter and venomous toward Hannah. I can hear the barbs Hannah must have endured at the hands of Panina. Seemingly innocent things like, Hannah dear, would you mind doing the dishes? I'm having the worst case of morning sickness. But then you couldn't possibly understand what that's like. Or Hannah, sweetie, don't be so sad. I can have enough babies for both of us. I suspect the mixture of pity, resentment, and superiority was too much for Hannah to bear. Then there's Elkanah's thick-headedness, not understanding why his love doesn't make up for Hannah's inability to have children. And Hannah's bargain with God, which seems almost more like a deal with the devil. Just give me a son and I'll give him right back to you. And to top it all off, when Eli sees Hannah praying fervently in the temple, he immediately projects onto her the drunkenness that he's probably witnessed in his own sons, two scoundrels that would go on to break Eli's own heart. It is into this dysfunctional situation that Samuel is born. Samuel, the last of the judges, the one who will anoint the first two kings of Israel, the one through whom God will do something new in the life of God's people. When it comes to those chosen by God to do something new in the world, Samuel isn't the only one to be born in less than ideal conditions. Moses was born in a time of infanticide when Pharaoh's men were killing male babies born to Hebrews. John the Baptist was born to an older woman and a father who was temporarily rendered unable to speak. And Jesus is conceived by an unmarried girl in Palestine, proof that something good can indeed come out of Nazareth. It seems that God intentionally chooses dysfunctional families to be cogs in the wheel of salvation. God doesn't just use the great or perfect among us. Against all odds, God uses personal struggles, imperfect families, those deemed second-class citizens, especially women, and the seemingly mundane and obscure situations he uses all of those to bring healing to the world. Hannah seems to understand this. In her song, she makes the connection between what, is God, what God is doing in her own life and what God is doing on the world stage. Hannah conceives a child, and the bows of the mighty are broken while the feeble become strong. Hannah bears a son, and the Lord raises up the poor from the dust, God lifts the needy from the ash heap. Hannah gets how God works. And we, well, we are wrong if we think the events in our everyday life are disconnected from God's greater dreams for the world. We are wrong if we think that the healing of our own wounds is isolated from the healing of the world. Sometimes seemingly minor reversals do give rise to seismic ones. See, resurrection may seem small, resurrection may seem larger than life, but in the end it is all resurrection, death and life, terrifying and beautiful, 
new birth again and again and again. And so this morning, I want to invite you to look into the most messed up, the most dysfunctional places in your life, and we all have them. Search within the rubble for bits of gold, for gifts hidden within the wound, for signs that the Holy Spirit is at work. And along with Hannah, Eli, Samuel, and all of us who know the pain of imperfect lives, Trust that in and through these very places, God is indeed making all things new.